Uh, so tonight we are continuing on in our journey of First Timothy. Specifically, we're going to be in First Timothy chapter six tonight. And uh, as you're flipping there, I had a question for you. Well, more like a request for you. Not I framed it like a question on here, but I realize it's not actually a question. So I want you to think about someone right now in your mind's eye who you would say is clearly obsessed with money. Who do you know that's super obsessed with money? Uh, it could be a celebrity, a business leader, a family member, anyone. Like have that person in your mind, okay? So when I was thinking about who I envision as somebody who's obsessed with money, one name rises at the top and it's this guy. Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> Scrooge is obsessed with cash. In fact, it's literally in his name. Scrooge is named by, was named by his creator after Ebenezer Scrooge, right? The measly old miser from the Christmas Carol. And the one who, who Scrooge McDuck would one day go on to play in his big screen debut with Mickey's Christmas Carol. So good, right? Uh, but like he, he's a my, like his name is a miserly name, right? When somebody's a Scrooge, you know what you're talking about, right? In fact, not only is that part of his name relevant to the fact that he's obsessed with money, his, his name, I checked this, um, and you can fact check me and prove me wrong, but in some of the sources I found from Disney, his name is a dollar sign. It's not actually Scrooge, it's dollar sign Scrooge. Like, because he is so obsessed with money that's embedded with like triple entendres with his name, right? So like this guy is obsessed with money. I mean, just watch DuckTales and you see this scene like on a regular basis, right? Where Scrooge jumps into his big pile of money in his bank vault at Duckbird Bank and he goes in there and he swims around, does laps. He puts on, uh, he even puts on a, a swimming outfit to go with the occasion. It's like he is obsessed with money. Now, when, so when we typically think about money and specifically people who are obsessed with it, that's the kind of image we have, right? Somebody who is like has an insane amount of capital and they are just so focused on their money they can't see past it. Now, I mention that because in our room, there is a great diversity of income levels present. And I would imagine not many of us have a bank vault that we go swimming on after we get off shifts, right? Like that's not our reality, but still, I would imagine that for just about all of us, we would answer fairly similar to this question. Do you imagine that your life would be easier if you found yourself in a higher income bracket? Do you imagine your life would be easier? I would, pro for me, and I'd maybe say for you as well, we'd probably say, yes, my life would be easier. Maybe not perfect, but it would definitely be easier. Now, just to be transparent, for myself, money is by far a super common stressor for me. Now, don't get me wrong, my family's well financially provided for, but there are things that I wish that we could do. There are ways that I want to take care of my family, but I don't get to do, and I, I feel inadequate about that. There are fears about what happens if an emergency comes that we don't anticipate. It drastically affects our financial reality. So I stress out about money. I become obsessed with money, and I don't have a bank vault in Duckburg. But so easily my hope goes up and down with wherever our financial situation currently is at. See, finances are just one of the limited resources in our world that we strive for. But the reality is, is most of us rarely feel like we have enough. I mean, have any of you thought recently, I just have too much money. I wonder what I'm going to do with it all. 
I don't even know what to do. Like, should I go buy something? Should I give it to somebody? I don't know. What should I do with all the money I have, right? We feel, and for many of us, we truly are financially stretched. Now, as we've been looking over the past couple of weeks, we think that if I just had more, then I would be content or secure uh, or generous with other people. If I just had more, then I'd be able to do more. Then I could be as happy as Scrooge is in that picture, right? I, I, could, I could go snorkeling through my golden jewels and I would be awesome. I don't even need gold and jewels. I'll take one or the other and I'll be awesome, right? Now, of course, this runs counter to probably what most many of us have experienced in our personal lives. When we get a raise, we're like, yes, that's awesome for a few minutes. And you're like, I wish I'd have gotten more. And this also runs counter to study after study regarding um, people's income level and personal happiness that have concluded that after your basic needs are met, the correlation between wealth and personal happiness begins to diminish and even becomes a cause of dissatisfaction and stress in certain situations of wealth as wealth increases. Now, so what I've just said is that within us is a desire that tells us to go after more. And then the next thing is that our personal experience and evidence shows the reality that more will never truly satisfy. Then what we're left with is, what's, a, what's the point? What's the point? What, what do I do with that? Now, this is similar to where we were at two weeks ago and we we're in the letter of First Timothy when we were talking about how Paul was writing about discontentment and the quest for more and that he essentially zooms out or zooms into this quest for more money. And he even writes this. He says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So if Paul's using such loaded language, then, then what is the point? Should we not work hard? Should we not seek after higher paying jobs? Should we not worry about retirement or buying a house? Like, should we care about any of those things? I mean, if money can't ultimately satisfy, then am I supposed to just completely disengage from it? If money can actually be a stumbling block towards true contentment, then what should we do? Now, tonight, as we move closer and closer to the end of this letter of 1 Timothy, what Paul is writing to Timothy about is going to regard the implications of what it means to have and to utilize resources. Now, this has always been a relevant topic within the church for that church then and for the church throughout the centuries because the church of Jesus around the globe through the centuries has consistently had a, been filled with a great diversity of individuals from different ethnic backgrounds, um, from different wealth and economic standpoint, uh, from different power structures. Some were powerful, some were in need. So Paul turns his attention specifically in this passage we're going to go into tonight to the wealthy and their community, but with a timeless truth that's just as relevant and important for all of us, whether we are as rich as Scrooge McDuck or not. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17 tonight. So here's what Paul writes to Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
So this brief passage is filled with paradigm-shifting thinking because I would imagine, I would imagine that just about all of us given the option would take hold of that, which is truly life, right? Like that's an attractive statement. Like I would like to have true life. Now it can be easy to miss this though, to miss the understanding within this because it can feel like it was written to a particular subset of individuals that it obviously includes because Paul writes ads for the rich in the present age. And so for us, if you don't believe you're rich, then you're like, cool, I get a pass on this passage. Like I'm good. It's not about me. Now, and then he's going to go into a bunch about generosity to which I would imagine we would say, yeah, I absolutely believe that people who are richer than me, they should absolutely be generous. Like, I'm sure we would probably say that, right? Regardless of our personal politics and our line of thinking about taxation, right? But just in general, it is a good thing when we see individuals like Bill Gates um, being philanthropic and spending a lot of his money through his charitable foundation, right? Like we look at that and go, yeah, that's what, if you're one of the richest people in the world, you should do that kind of stuff. That is a good thing. Now we could go into various realities about how wealthy each of us are in comparison to worlds of abject poverty in different countries around the world. And we can say, see, that means you too. But the reality is that each of us have unique stories, unique um, issues, unique circumstances, um, and unique contexts that we all come from. And also just making a broad brush statement that this all applies to you because you're rich in the present age as well, that is honestly probably going to leave flat. But there's a much more impactful reason for why you should care about this passage. Why you should care about what it's saying. Because what it's actually getting at is not a point that is rooted in the circumstances of wealth or poverty. It is rooted in your identity. See, according to the scriptures, you were created to be a steward. A steward. Now, a steward is someone who doesn't own a thing. They are tasked by the owner of the thing to care for the thing, to protect the thing, uh, to use it wisely because it's not yours. It's not the sewers, it's the owner's thing. So you need to use it in light of the fact that you are not the owner. Now in the scriptures, we discover that this is the reality for us human beings. We are not the owners of anything. We own nothing. God owns the cosmos. He owns planet earth. He owns our natural resources, the animals around us, our significant others, our personal property, whatever is or is not in our bank accounts, even the breath in our lungs. He owns all of it. Let me just check out the poetic languages recorded in the Old Testament, First Chronicles 29. I'm just going to read this section really quick. Listen how beautiful this prayer is. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens, heavens being every place outside of planet earth, and in the earth is yours. So everything. Everything around us, everything outside in the cosmos is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hands are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and we praise your glorious name. You own nothing. He owns everything. He is the owner, not us. 
Whatever, whether you acknowledge it or not, it doesn't change the fact of who the true owner is. Uh, imagine that you wanted to go and, um, and, and take possession of a Ferrari. So you go down the Ferrari dealership in Orlando and, and, and you go there and for some reason they don't do like probably the rigorous background checks and stuff they do to let you test drive a Ferrari at the Ferrari dealership. And they don't even have like a armed escort to go with you. And so you, you're in the car by yourself from the, the dealership. You didn't buy it. You don't have the title and you start driving away and you even, you're like, it's mine. It's my car. It's my, my mine. No one else is mine. Now, the title's not in your name, though. So is it yours? No. You could delude yourself into believing it's yours all you want, but it's not yours. Your name isn't on the title. And see, God owns, but he created human beings to co-roll with him. Here's what's so beautiful. In Genesis chapter two, we see God creating the human and he puts him in the garden and he gives him three tasks. He says to work the garden, to keep the garden and to name the animals in the garden. Now, God is the owner of everything. And God's pretty efficient at this whole creation business. And he's a much better take care of of just about everything than us, right? So why would he invite Adam into this venture? I mean, couldn't God have more efficiently worked the garden, kept the garden, and probably come up with a little bit better names than Adam for the animals in the garden? Like, yeah, right? But he delegated. He said, you're co-ruling with me in this. We're going to do this together. Yes, I'm the owner, but you're the steward and I'm going to trust you now. I'm giving you space. So that was our created function to co-rule with God, to enjoy him forever. But that wasn't enough for humanity. So we rebelled against God and we continued to rebel against God, desiring to believe that we are the owners of our own lives, our own existences, our own everything, our own world. We don't see ourselves as stewards. I mean, just think about this in terms of our individual desire to define good and bad on our own terms. We believe that we have a greater right to say what is right or wrong than the creator who gave us breath in our lungs and who crafted our purpose. But here's what's incredible. The gospel is the good news that God has called us back through Jesus to redeem and to restore us into our initial purpose. To know him, to be known by him, to enjoy him, to co-rule with him, to recapture this kingdom vision of stewardship, to wake up and realize I'm not the owner, but I know the one who is and he's really good. And this changes the way that we should think about our finances so that we don't just think, yeah, this absolutely applies to those who are wealthy. So let's go back to the passage again. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So this shows us one of the pitfalls of what happens when you believe you're the owner you become what he calls here haughty. To be haughty is to be prideful and arrogant, to believe it's yours, that you've earned it. But there's no room for that in God's economy because you're not an owner. You're a steward. So yes, you worked hard to build up your income level. Yes, you worked hard and diligently to save and do all of that. And that's all good stewardship. But at the end of the day, it's stewardship, not ownership. 
And then he says, not to set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. See, the reality is even the best financial plans can be ruined overnight, right? I mean, look at any of the great financial disasters through modern history, the Great Depression in the 20s, a little over a decade ago, the Great Recession, right? There were There were a lot of people who did really bad things that led to both of those realities, but there were also a lot of people who didn't do anything wrong. They planned, they saved, they worked hard, and still, because of realities outside of their control, their financial futures were upended overnight. So don't set, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So, of course, we know what Paul's saying here. In that case, don't save a dime, don't work hard, don't have wise plans, live on faith, and just see what happens. No, that's not what Paul's saying at all, right? Like, that's the opposite of what he's saying here. Paul's not saying that having plans is a bad call. He is saying don't attach your hope to those plans because those plans can be destroyed. Your hope needs to be on something that's certain. See, those plans are uncertain. I mean, just think about all the things that we, we think of as certainties. We think of our career, our friends, our family, our health, our bodies, our intelligence, our craftiness. Like those things were like, yeah. And we put our hope into those kind of things. But just like finances, all of those things can be upended at a moment. So in a world of uncertainty, what is certain? Not to set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, the eternal one, the only true certainty in all of existence throughout time. And see, when we remember that we are stewards, we can have our hope placed on the only one who is certain, who can plan and prepare. We can do those things with him, but we trust that ultimately, even if the unimaginable is to happen, we are anchored to hope that transcends our circumstances because he is our provider who richly provides. In fact, he is the one who it says here, who richly provides with everything to enjoy. Think about that. Paul doesn't, now, what Paul doesn't say here is that God provides us with everything we desire. Doesn't say that. In fact, according to Paul, when he's writing to the church in Philippi a few years before this letter, he is talking about his own personal experience. And he talks about how even though he was operating in the middle of God's will, it, because he found himself in an imperfect, broken, fallen world, you can find yourselves in seasons of plenty and in seasons of need. But he said, I have learned the secret to contentment that I can do all these things with Christ who gives me strength because I am anchored not to what he might give me, but I'm anchored to him, not to stuff, but him, not to the goods, but him. Because we're anchored to Jesus who can give us strength. We are realizing that there is a certainty that is beyond the scope of our circumstances. Because even on planet death, even in a world that's fallen, even when tragedy strikes, there is a God who provides. Now, here's what I love about this passage. It says, whatever he provides is given to us to enjoy. Isn't that interesting? He uses the word enjoy. In other words, God is not devoid of emotion. He wants to stir within our hearts and our minds genuine joy. Happiness emanates from our circumstances. Joy comes from relational connection in the midst of whatever the circumstance is. 
See, God created us to enjoy the things that he has provided us. And not because they're things, but because they're provided to us by him. If we're given something, but it's not from him, it doesn't matter how good it might feel. It doesn't matter how attractive it might be. It's not from him. So why would you take it? Because enjoyment comes from the things that are come from his hand. And in that we can be present. In that we can rest. In that we can be satisfied. Now, isn't that what our generations long for? To truly enjoy things. To be, I mean, all the the phrases that we hear, to be mindful or in the moment, to be satisfied. Like those kind of phrases. Like we're like, yeah, I, I want that. But unfortunately, our generation is also defined by discontentment. So how do we live in those tensions and those realities that we are so discontent, but yet we strive for contentment so hard? Now, I know for me, when I am living in discontentment, I am not focused on enjoying much of anything. Instead, I am dwelling on what I would rather have or what I want next. But when we're anchored to Jesus and our contentment is satisfied in him, then we are free to truly be present. See, in Jesus, we have the connection to the true provider, the one who satisfies our longings within our heart and our mind. And in the midst of whatever wonderful or difficult circumstance we find ourselves in, we are reminded that the reason that he is the provider is because he's the true owner. Freeing us to become participants with him, going back to the mold of not believing that we are the the ruler, but we are co-rulers. That we get to be a part, invited in by the God of the universe. See, the mind and art of a steward isn't one that's bored or depressed, but instead it is bursting with contentment and enjoyment because it's rooted in him. In him, our affections and our thoughts are captivated. Our actions and our worldview is transformed. And when we do that, This makes sense. Verse 18 and 19. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Doing good, being rich in good works, being generous, being ready to share. Talk about a countercultural life, right? in a world that is inundated on the self, in a focus that is about what's in it for me. We see here a vision that is far beyond me. Now, has anyone ever really lived this life though? Can you guys think of anyone in the Bible who might've ever lived a life like this? You can shout it out. Jesus. Jesus. It's the right answer to this question. Jesus is our king and our rabbi who is the ultimate example of this. I mean, think about this description. I don't know how much you know about Jesus, but he did good. He was rich in good works. He was generous and he was always ready to share. Like this is Jesus. He stewarded his life for the benefit of others. He laid down his life to redeem and restore us. Even though he was the creator of the cosmos. Isn't that wild? Who would do that? This is our rabbi, our teacher, and we follow in the footsteps and in the dust of our rabbi to live as stewards of all that he has given us. 
That means that all my resources, my time, my energy, my finances, they're not mine, they're his. And I get the insane privilege to be connected to him, to operate and to utilize all of those things that he has given out of his kindness. I get to use those for his glory. I get to use those to demonstrate love. I get to use those and at the same time be content and not defined by those things because my enjoyment and my contentment is rooted in him. See, you were created to be a steward, but specifically you were created to be a steward of a generous and missional life. Generous. To be generous is to steward the resources that you have been given to care for the needs of others. That's a generous person, right? A generous person stewards the resources that they have been given to care for the needs of others. And to be missional is good works, to steward the life that you have been given to demonstrate love for God and love for people. We're called to be a generous and missional people. Now that's beautiful, but the human side within us, what's it saying? Okay, but if I go too far down the rabbit hole, what's in it for me? I want to live my best life now. Like what, what do I get out of this? I want to live a rich life. But you see, according to the Bible and what Paul's writing here, a generous and missional life is the rich life. See, when we envision a rich life, we think of more resources, right? We think of more stuff. But when Paul writes about a rich life, that which is truly life, he is referring to something that is not in the, the desire for ac- acquiring more stuff. It's acquiring more stories. See, we were created to steward a generous and missional life and to collect stories more than stuff. To live a life of demonstrating love for God and love for others, of a life of seeing the needs of others and stepping in, a life of seeing the needs of others and responding, a life of walking in the dust of our rabbi, of partnering with Jesus and demonstrating his uncommon love to a world in desperate need of hope and grace. This is what we get to do. This reminded me of something that we've been doing, uh, for th- we're going to be doing over the course of this year, which is un- collecting uh, what we're calling uncommon love stories, ways that we have anonymously been able to partner with Jesus as we are sharing the uncommon love of Jesus at Walt Disney World to cast members. And I want to share this one story with you of somebody who was um, desiring to um, minister in their, in their space. My one friend who works with me at Disney loves brunch. So when we when we would together, so when we'd work together, we began organizing Sunday brunch each week for the people in our area. It became a weekly thing that our work location looked forward to, and it also brought us closer and grew our relationship. It was always my favorite day of the week. She was so good at loving people. We also had the chance to host a spaghetti night at our house with the cast members who work in my area, and it was so fun to have them in my home. It was simple and so nice to bring people together. That's not flashy, but it is a rich life. Using whatever resources God has given us to demonstrate his uncommon love to a world in need. It's not that people needed brunch or they need spaghetti, although I'm a fan of both of those realities, right? But it's because what they need is connection. And more than any other connection, they need a connection to Jesus. 
See, none of this is just about being a good or a better person. It is about walking in the dust of our rabbi, about abiding to Jesus, drawing so close, so near to him, entrusting what he says and who he says you are over what you think about who you are. And from that, the identity becomes a physical demonstration to the world around us. When we turn the car around and we head back to the dealership and put the keys back in his hand and go, I'm so sorry, I thought I owned my life. It's yours. It's yours. All we're doing when we surrender our life to Jesus is giving back to him what was already his. We're not giving him something that's ours. We're giving it to him what's his. We're saying, hey, I'm in my bad. <laughs> you know, like, like I, I took this from you. It's not mine, it's yours. And when we do this, we, as Paul writes here, we are storing up treasure. We're crafting a good foundation for the future. We're taking hold of that which is truly life. And in a sense, when we are generous with our resources, we aren't actually really giving away anything. Yes, we, our, our finances might decrease out of our desire to be generous with others. Our time might decrease for ourselves out of our desire to be generous with others, for sure. But we're actually doing this. We are investing into the kingdom of heaven. We're investing into a kingdom that's not of this world. We're investing in that which is truly life. Now, with all this information and context in mind, the question that we have to ask is, so what does this mean for me? What should this mean for my life? Well, first, this means that we need to realize that this is the same opportunity that exists for all of us, both in our individual lives and within our lives, within our biblical community. Out of our identity, not as owners, but stewards, we get to participate in the collecting stories more than stuff. And as a community, as Mosaic at WW, our mission field is across the street. It's the however many current thousands of cast members, but somewhere between 40 and 70,000 of them. Those individuals are behind every name tag. There's a story and we get to both learn that story and be a part of seeing what Jesus might do in the midst of it. But it's hard to do when we're collecting stuff more than stories. One of them's easier to collect, but one of them's worth it. Now, none of this makes us so holy or is because stuff is inherently bad. It's not that. It's because whenever we partner with Jesus, we get to be on the front row watching as he loves others through us, as he takes care of needs through us, as he multiplies our efforts to make eternal impact. And so tonight I want to invite up uh, Joelle and Tanique Ramjohn from Agape Source. Joelle serves as one of our elders and Tanique serves as one of our deacons. And I want to ask them a few questions about the organization that they that they have the opportunity to steward called Agape Source. Perfect. And actually, Joelle, first question I had was for you, sir. Um, so Joelle, what is the heartbeat behind Agape Source? Uh, well, the heartbeat behind Agape Source is to reach the unreached uh, that are coming to Central Florida, whether they're working at Disney or are as refugees or students at the local universities. And what we classify unreached are just those that have very little access to no access to the gospel. So it can be from their country or from a religious uh, perspective. And so we aim to reach them just through practically demonstrating the gospel to them, loving on them, caring for them um, as they are here. And then when they head back to their whole countries. It's awesome. 
Tanique, what needs does Agape Source get to partner into within all of these different stories? So many. We um, have been given a unique opportunity to really step into the lives of, um, like Joel said, Disney internationals, as well as internationals in the city. And so we get to anywhere from airport pickups to uh, taking them to the ethnic store, helping them with taxes, helping them with any practical things that they are going to need here. We literally wrap around them and care for them in those areas. For example, um, some of the internationals that come to work for Disney will take them down on a trip to Miami, um, you know, just for a few days to do a quick tourist trip because they're on a low budget. And I remember on one of those trips, for example, uh, one of the interns started sharing because she was finally out of her Disney bubble. She started sharing some of the ch ch challenges, sorry, that she was going through. And through that, uh, we came to find out um, that she was actually suicidal. Uh, we began to wrap around her, began mentoring her, doing Bible study with her. And through that, she really began to uh, get firmer in her relationship with Christ. And it just became an opportunity to continue to stand alongside her in her journey. Now, we still journey with this young lady and so many others who have been going through, um, who have gone through very difficult things, either while they were here during their program or um, with others, it was another couple that were currently doing Bible study and discipling right now. Um, over just months of knowing them, we were they were asking us if we can watch their firstborn baby while they go to the hospital to have their second. And so very easy, practical ways that God has allowed us to step in, but it makes such an impact when we get to be to partner with him in these areas. Follow up then for that is what would um, what are some of the ways that we in our community can step into Agape Source's story as you are impacting these other stories. Yeah, so we need you all, the body of Christ, to pray with us and to pray for the ministry. Uh, we seek to um, reach out to, right now in this current season, we're reaching out to Japanese students that are um, just coming back as CRPs uh, with the program. And many of them, as you know, the Japanese have gone without ever hearing the gospel before. And so uh, there are lots of spiritual barriers there, as well as Indian students on the UCF side that we're reaching out to. And so we just need a lot of prayer coverage that God will continue to open their hearts, soften their hearts, um, and make them ready for the good news of Jesus. Another way you can get involved, we have lots of volunteer opportunities throughout the year. Um, and so I think at the end, they're going to post a QR code so you can get involved, but it's just agapesource.org slash get involved. And so lots of practical opportunities to get involved there. And then finally, um, you know, as the Lord leads, if you feel led to partner with us, we definitely um, need financial partners that will stand with us in the vision to continue to do what we do. So, Joelle, what would be your encouragement to our community as far as what it would look like to grow in, um, in the mindset of a steward? Uh, desiring to collect stories more than stuff. Yeah, I think one of the things that the enemy has done with us is taken us completely away from our desired purpose, right? And Christ came to restore us and redeem us and bring us back to that. And one of the most powerful things we can do is partner with what God is hit with what his ultimate plan is. Revelation 7-9 talks about every nation, every tribe, every tongue, standing before the Father, glorifying Him, right? And one of the most 
powerful things we could do is see that happen now, is begin that process of saying, God, I was a part of that. I was a part of being at, at just having an influence in that great multitude that's standing before you. What a beautiful picture that would be for the Lord, that when you come to this Disney campus, when you, when you see every life that's being touched by you guys is actually affecting that and that final day when every nation, tribe, and tongue is standing before the Father. And I know you guys are already doing a lot of that. And so let's just keep going, right? That's awesome. Thank you both for sharing. Appreciate it, guys. As a church, we step into a number of stories locally and globally. And Agape Source is one of our, uh, as a church, it's one of our partners that we financially support. And these are the kinds of stories that each of us get to participate in with our tithes and gifts of generosity into our local church together. Now in our individual lives, we get to be sent to participate with Jesus in the lives and stories of those we work with, live with, and do life with. I mean, think about that for a second. Isn't that crazy? The God of the universe wants to partner with you. Think about your favorite celebrity. Wouldn't it be cool if you got like a DM saying like, hey, I'd love to partner with you on this new project, right? Like you'd be excited about that. The God of the universe wants to partner with you. He invites you, not some obscure vision of you, but you. He knows you. And he wants to invite us into a rich life, a generous life, a missional life, that we take hold of that which is truly life. Participating with him in the stories of others as we gather, as we scatter. Let each of us live as stewards of all that our true provider has given us. I want to invite the band to come on up. And as they do, I wanted to invite us into just taking a few minutes to reflect. We've covered a lot of ground tonight. And what I would love for you to do is simply bow your head and just take two minutes asking God, who are the people in my life? What are the missional opportunities in my story? What are the calls to generosity that you're putting on me to give of myself? Whether it's with your energy, your time, and even your finances. So let's take a couple minutes to just simply rest in this.
Father, I confess, but I don't believe that I'm the only one that would make this confession, that I so often believe I'm the owner, that it's my stuff, my time, my energy, my life. But I confess that to you. And I'll keep confessing it to you because my heart wants to believe that that is true. But at its core, it knows it's not. It knows the ultimate satisfaction is in you. Ultimate hope is in you. All that you have given, all that you provided, it's in you. So I pray, Lord, that you would remind my heart and the minds and hearts of all my friends here tonight how desperately we need you and how good you are to give yourself. You're not begrudging what you provide and give it to us to enjoy. And the greatest thing you've ever given us wasn't a thing. It wasn't in our bank accounts. It's in Jesus. So draw us near to you tonight. Just to worship you in spirit and in truth. So Jesus, let me pray.